Welcome to the Own Your Choices, Own Your Life podcast. I am your host, Marsha Van Weinsberg. I'm a business coach, speaker, and author of the best-selling book, When She Stopped Asking Why. On this podcast, we will use the tips, tools, and strategies used by myself and our speakers to break through and overcome the challenges in our lives. When we take radical responsibility of our choices, create boundaries, grow our courage and practice self-care and letting go of what isn't ours to control, we can completely change our stories. When we take full ownership of our stories, we take back our personal power and this allows us to impact, serve and support others by showing them that they are not alone and helping them find freedom from their stories. When you own your choices, you truly own your life. Let's dive in. Welcome to another episode of Own Your Choices, Own Your Life. And today we are speaking with Erin Patterson. Erin is a Canadian author and public speaker who tested gene positive for Huntington's disease. Shortly after she started suffering from depression, then received more crushing news that she was infertile. Despite those diagnoses, she was determined to have a family and live a joyful life. She's on a mission to positively impact other people's lives by writing and speaking about genetic disease, depression, and infertility. She shows that it is possible to live a meaningful life when we are faced with unexpected obstacles. She is the author of All Good Things, a memoir about genetic testing, infertility, and one woman's relentless search for happiness. This was such a powerful episode. It really, really was. I was so moved to the core in having this conversation with Aaron. We spoke all about finding the gifts in our adversities and how that can take a really long time to find the gifts that they are there and they're buried sometimes in our most difficult times in our lives. But when we can come to a space of seeing the gifts and finding ourselves living in that present moment, how it can actually change our perspective and then learning to pay that forward to help others really can change the entire narrative of the story. And that is one of the things that Erin spoke about today in this episode. She talked about learning how to share her story, unpack her story and allowing herself to support others in seeing that they were not alone in their stories of struggle allowed her to control the narrative. It moved her from being in the victim space to being in control and owning her own choices of how she responded to what she was dealing with in her life. This was a 10-year journey, and she really shares it so beautifully and vulnerably with us today that I'm so proud to have her on the show. She talked about the concept of vulnerability hangover and how listening to one of my episodes helped her to understand The vulnerability hangover is real. When you are really sharing these parts of our stories and our lives that we have come through, it can bring us back to a space that feels like we feel very exposed. And that vulnerability hangover is real. We have to check in every day to see both what we need, what decision we can make that can move us closer, one step closer to where we want to be. And sharing our stories can be incredibly taxing and vulnerable, yet it can lead us to a beautiful space of seeing the gifts in our adversities. And this is exactly what Erin does today as she shares her story with us. I'm so honored to have her on the show, and I know you're going to absolutely love this episode. Welcome to the show today, Erin. I'm so thrilled to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. I, I love how the world connects us to the right people. 
And one of my clients and friends had interviewed you and she's like, oh, I definitely, you definitely need to speak with Aaron. So as I started to learn a little bit more about you, I was like, yep, definitely let's make this happen. So I'm thrilled (laughs) to have you here today. Where are you from? Thank you. I'm from Toronto. I'm from Toronto. So another like Canadian, which is awesome because I, I (laughs) even have many people from West coast and, you know, California all over. So I love having another fellow Canadian. And so tell us, you are an author and a public speaker. Has that always been your role? No, (laughs) it's only been in the last couple of years that I've started doing all that. Um, I was writing a book for about four or five years, which was just released about two and a half months ago now. Um, So that's where the author part came in. And I've just started doing all of the public speaking this year. Um, I've sort of by default become a Huntington's disease advocate. And it started because I was writing my book and I knew I had to start building my author platform, as they call it, to be able to get exposure for my book. So I started writing guest blog posts and those were just kind of like baby steps for me, you know, putting out a story and one little piece of my story and not having people reject me. And I just kept doing that over a period of three years, which was building my author platform as I was writing my book and getting ready to release my book into the world. I thank you for sharing that. That is something that I actually have a couple conversations coming up over the next few days and people who are writing books and want to find a way to share. And I said, the first thing I did was I looked you up and not you, but to them look up on social media and you're not even talking about this, but you have a book Mm -hmm. coming out about it. You've got to build that platform Mm -hmm. over time. So you said that that process took you about two to three years as you started to talk about Huntington's and become that advocate before your book released. Is that correct? Yeah. So for me, writing the book was a very emotional thing. And it was hard to think about writing anything else at the same time as writing the book. But once I had the first draft under my belt, and it was out with editors, then I felt like I could start putting other little stories together that weren't interfering with the main story of my book. Um, And I the first story I got published was in 2018. So it's 2021 now. So in that three years, I've had 25 stories published online. And I've had two stories published in anthologies. And then I've just released my own book. So I didn't know it was going to build up to be that many things. And it's just I just kept taking little baby steps along the way to do those things. And my um, theory for building my author platform wasn't to blog on my own website, because it's hard to get noticed. So I decided that I was going to guest blog on other websites because they always have thousands, they already have thousands or hundreds of thousands of followers. So the first website I reached out to was the mighty, which is a health and wellness website. And I got my story accepted there. And then once I didn't feel rejected, (laughs) I felt that I could start researching other places that I could start writing for. So I think I've guest blogged on about 13 different websites. Oh, good for you. I think that's the piece, the collaborative piece and the back end work that a lot of people don't see that we do have to do in order to help to get our story out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I also have a social media presence, but a, it takes a long time to build up that presence. And it also feels like it grows really slowly and it's not going anywhere. <laughs> especially, you know, my Instagram account really doesn't have a lot of followers. I think I might have 470 followers right now, 
but there is a really good community of Huntington's disease advocates on, on Instagram. And I've made some really good connections through Instagram. And some of those connections have led to um, me getting a story published on a blog in the UK or me getting a story published in the United States somewhere. So that has really helped with me learning and growing as an author and a writer and making connections within the community. So mm-hmm. it's even even if you don't have a lot of followers, it's still value valuable for it's kind of like networking a little bit. 100%. I actually just interviewed um a sales coach this morning who had like 12 or 13,000 followers on her Instagram and she just dropped it and started again on purpose because she said, you know, I really didn't have like the engagement piece was not there. And I was not the people that I know I was meant to connect with. It wasn't happening. So, you know, guy, you got 12,000 followers, but she goes, I have like no story views. So I just went, no, drop it all. And I'm going to start over from scratch. And that's what she did. And in doing so now she has engagement. So I loved her example that we put so much value into our followers and all those things mm-hmm. when it doesn't matter if we're not engaging with the right people. Right. And that's a very brave decision of her to just drop it start from scratch. That's why I said, I was glad she shared it because I was like, this is just permission for other people, right? That they don't have to do it that way. Yeah. So would you be able to explain to the listeners what Huntington's is? Um, Huntington's disease is a neurological disorder that happens to be genetic. So it causes cognitive impairment, emotional issues, and uncontrolled movements. Um, a lot of people liken it to a mixture of ALS, Alzheimer's, and Parkinson's disease, Parkinson's disease all mushed together. Um, I didn't find out Huntington's disease ran in my family until my husband and I announced that we were trying to have children. We were 31 years old, and we decided it was time to settle down and have a family. Mm-hmm. And that's when my parents shared the suspicions that they thought my grandmother might have died from Huntington's disease. Now, there was no genetic test at the time of her death, so they didn't know for sure. Um, But once I found out that it might be in our family, um, my husband and I together, we made the decision for me to get tested. And um, a short eight months later, I found out that I was gene positive for Huntington's disease. Now, being gene positive just means that I'm going to get the disease one day. It doesn't mean I already have the disease. So I'm going to get it. I just don't know when the symptoms will start. Can I ask you what that feels like? Um, Right now? Yeah. (laughs) I got tested in 2007, so it's been a number of years. Um, It did take me a very long time to accept that that was my future, and I did go through a very deep depression and, and years of trying to learn what my self-worth was, e- even though I knew I was going to get this disease. Um, so that was quite the journey to go through. Uh, these days, it's not in the forefront of my mind all of the time. And I'm able to live with the knowledge better than I did before. You know, in the past, everything I saw would remind me that I was going to get Huntington's disease and it would be very hard to just go about the world. You know, if I was at the grocery store and I saw an old person with shaking hands, I would start to imagine that was my future. So it was very hard to just be living (laughs) because everything reminded me of it. Nowadays, I'm able to really compartmentalize parts of my life. You know, 
um, I'm able to set it on the back burner and not let it overwhelm me like it used to. Um, but it is very difficult knowing what your future holds, especially as it's genetic. So that means my dad has Huntington's disease and he is suffering from it now. And I am a caregiver for my father. So it could be particularly difficult to do things and help him because it's a reflection of what my future is for sure. Yeah, no, that definitely is a piece that I thank you for sharing because I, I mean, I know that none of this is easy, but I, I know the power of what you're doing and how you're sharing your story. And I just, I just want to honor you. I'm going to say it a few times today because I really do want to honor <laughs> you for what you're doing. I do. I think this is, I think this is like, it's one thing to share a story. It's an, it's just another level to share difficult stories. So how did you get to the space of deciding that you were going to share your story? Ever since I was diagnosed, I just felt like this was such a huge, big thing that had happened to me. And it really changed my perspective on life. And I just thought, how come people aren't talking about this? Like, I am not the same person. Everybody looks at me and they think I'm the same person. Uh, but they don't realize that there's been this fundamental shift in me as a person, even early on before I had come to all of the acceptance of the disease, even as I was going through all of that depression, I felt I need to talk about this. I need to share this story. So there was that little inkling at the very beginning, but Huntington's disease is something that not a lot of people talk about. And even in my family, nobody would talk to me about it. My dad didn't have symptoms at the time. I didn't have any symptoms. I still don't have any symptoms, but they really didn't understand what I was so worried about. And for a long time, I didn't understand why I was so worried too, because I wasn't sick yet. So why, why was this affecting me so much? And it took me a while to learn that I was grieving the future that I thought I was going to have. And it was through therapy that I learned that. But I was just like struggling along, trying to fit all these pieces together and trying trying to figure out all of this by myself. And I really wanted to start writing and sharing my story because I knew it would help other people. Um, I knew that speaking up about how badly I felt and putting a voice to those experiences would make a connection with other people and they would read them and think, okay, I'm not alone. Somebody else is going through this. And I, I knew that would happen because I had experienced that through the power of reading as well. I'm a very big reader and I read lots of memoirs while I was going through all of this. And sometimes it would just be one sentence in an entire book. That would be the thing that I would connect with and that would help me get through the next day. So I just really wanted to put a voice to those experiences so that people, people would know that they're not alone. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. How many people are affected or do carry the Huntington's gene? <laughs> I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but it, it, it is considered a rare disease. Hmm. So there's not a high prevalence of it. I thought it was, I thought it was a rare disease. I, I really had no idea. I really appreciate you sharing from the perspective of grieving. And I think that that is that is a really hard thing to, you've just made me think of something that somebody used to say to me is that, you know, at least your, at least your boys are alive. And I'm like, but I've, I grieved that they were gone because I was like weird to live and grieve for my future did not look the way that not for very different reasons, but 
that grieving, I think we associate grieving with like somebody's dying and Mm -hmm. I, or somebody has passed, but the, to live and grieve at the same time requires a different level of um, work and personal work. So how, how did you work through that grieving process for anybody else who's listening? I really just fumbled my way through it. Yep. Um, I, I made a decision very early on, and it's really in part thanks to reading a book by Michael J. Fox. I had read this book by Michael J. Fox when I was in my early 20s before I even knew about Huntington's disease being in my family. Mm-hmm. And in the book, he talks about getting young, young onset Parkinson's disease, and he describes it as being a gift. And I remember thinking to myself at the time, like, how is that even possible? <laughs> and I knew in that moment that if anything like that ever happened to me, I wanted to be like Michael J. Fox and be able to see it as a gift or be able to see it as a positive thing. So very early on after I was diagnosed, I remember thinking to myself, like, I don't want this to ruin my life. I want to be able to find happiness again. And I want to be like Michael J. Fox and look at this as a gift. So I had to me, that was a huge, big, lofty goal. Because I was so depressed, I could barely get out of bed in the morning. I was so depressed if there was a sock on the floor, I didn't have the energy to pick it up. And I was so depressed that I couldn't be in my house by myself because I was so afraid of my diagnosis that I would just start ruminating and thinking over and over and over again, I'm going to get HD, I'm going to get HD. The the information was just so shocking. I didn't know how to deal with it. So to be able to think in that moment, I want to be able to find happiness, I'm going to look for happiness was a huge step for me. And I would just do crazy little things like sometimes I would just buy a yellow mug at Starbucks and have this yellow mug that I would drink my coffee or tea from every day because seeing that little bright flash of yellow when I was drinking was the only positive thing in my day that day. Or I would, um, my therapist at the time, Um, recommended writing in a happiness journal. So I would have a little journal and every night before I went to bed, I would just write down one good thing that had happened to me each day. And it was really hard to find one good thing. So those are, were little steps that I would take. I read a lot of books, as I mentioned before, I listened to a lot of documentaries on the CBC radio and it could be about anybody overcoming any hardship I would find inspiration in the fact that they had gone through a struggle and overcome that hardship. And I went through a lot of therapy, (laughs) lots. Um, I was also going through infertility shortly after my genetic diagnosis. So I had an infertility therapist that I would see every second week. And she would talk to me about things related to Huntington's disease as well. So those are just some of the things that I did, but I, I was just really fumbling my way through like to think of it as going in a straight line or in a clear path is not how it was at all. And I really had no idea if I was ever going to make it there. I just knew I had to keep trying. So I just tried to do one little thing every day to lead me towards happiness. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. And I think there's so much power in what you've said because from the outside in, so many times there's this misconception about what somebody is doing and that how easy it's been for them or how straight that line has been. When I love how you shared the intention that every day it was like, I had to look for one thing. And sometimes I had to, I remember writing gratitudes and it would be like, it was, I saw the sun today. 
I was, and that was because that's all my brain could see. And it took time, right. To be in a space of at least trying to find some kind of gratitude to anchor and stack those habits so that you could shift yourself and where you were at at that time. Mm -hmm. But I didn't even like, that's very advanced language that you just used to me because I didn't know that I was doing those things. Mm -hmm. I I was just like, yeah, I was just trying to survive and I was just trying to pile on little things that would work. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's a, I, I, I don't, I don't have the phrase of a long game, but I see it as such a long game in that when you are working your way through something like that, it's, it's not fast. It, it does take like every single day, some kind of intention to look for, to shift, to, to create change. And unfortunately, I really feel like it took me a good 10 years mm-hmm. and that is not a very hopeful thing to say to people. But I was going through infertility and um, every month when I was going through fertility treatments, I had to face up to the fact that I might pass on this disease to my child. So every month that brought Huntington's disease back to the forefront of my mind. And I really felt like it it delayed my healing because sometimes when you're trying to heal, you just want to try and forget about it as a way of coping. But I wasn't able to do that at all. It just kept being brought up time after time after time. And even after our daughter was born and I'd become a mom, it hadn't happened in the way that I ever imagined it would. And people would say to me, you must be happy now. You're, you're the mom you've always dreamed of being. But at the same time, I was still grieving my own fertility, right? Because we adopted our daughter. I didn't give birth to my child. Mm-hmm. So I was grieving that possibility too. You know, like you said, you're grieving the future you thought you had. You're grieving while you're still alive. I was grieving the fact that I couldn't bear a child. And I was incredibly happy to have adopted my daughter. um, But that didn't take away the fact that I was still infertile. I was going to ask you about that process. And so you went through the genetic testing before you were diagnosed with the Huntington's gene. And that you said it was about eight month time period. And then did you start... Um, work with your infertility doctor during that time, after that time, how did that process work? So we started trying to conceive in the fall and then I found out in, uh, so, and then we told my parents and that's when they told us about the Huntington's gene. I found out um, in June of the following year about HD. And in the beginning, my husband and I decided to try and have children as naturally as possible. We were just going to not worry about the Huntington's gene um, there, there was a 50% risk that our child, each child you bear would have the chance of inheriting the gene. And I said to myself at the time that my life has value as a person with Huntington's disease. And so would the life of my child, if they happen to inherit it from me. So that's why we made the decision to try and conceive naturally. But after an entire year of trying, we still weren't pregnant. So then our family doctor sent us to a fertility specialist. And that's how we ended up seeing a fertility doctor. Okay. Thank you. So, and how old is your daughter now? Nine. Nine. <laughs> yes. Wow. <laughs> wow. Parenting journey brings its own like growing pains and challenges anyways. Yes. Right? That's <laughs> Especially incredible. during a pandemic. <laughs> I, I don't even know how many times my husband and I both said that is that like we had our own challenges as parenting that pandemic brings a whole new level of that. I can't fathom with kids how much harder that is. (laughs) It's just a 
hard to keep them busy, right? And entertained and happy. Mm-hmm. 100%. Yeah. The world is changing. It's it's impossible not to affect them, but mm-hmm. it requires so much from the parent to also, you know, have the perspective of like, okay, this is where we're at. And this is the way it is. As one of my friends said, you know, um, all of her son's friends at the time kept talking about this was the worst thing in the world that would happen. I'm like, if we keep saying that, that's all they're hearing. Like we have to find a way. But mm-hmm. and I can't, again, I can't fathom this has not been an easy time for so many families. <laughs> but some really great things have come of it for sure. My daughter has developed a huge love of reading because of the pandemic. Nice. We didn't have any friends to play with. And at the time you weren't even allowed to play with your next door neighbor, but they gave us a box of books from their basement. There was like 50 or 60 books in there. And she worked her way through them over a couple of months and she's kept that habit up. So that's been an amazing thing. That's awesome. That is so awesome. So then you be, you have a nine-year-old now and Mm -hmm. you started the process then of like during that time of learning how to share your story of learning to like, where did you get to a space of saying, okay, but no, I'm actually like, I think I have a book here, my own book. Or was that always an intention that you had? It was always an intention that I had. Yeah. Yeah. From the very beginning. And I questioned it extensively. I thought like, who am I to write a book? Am I that conceited that I think I should write an entire book about myself? Um, Who's going to read the book? Nobody's going to be interested. What are my friends and family going to think? What is my husband and my daughter going to think, especially my husband and my daughter, right? Um, Especially my daughter, because I would be sharing a part of her adoption story. So I really thought long and hard about which parts of her story to share and how to share it, because I was aware of her one day she'll be reading her adoption story through my eyes. And I wanted her to have a positive view of that as well. But also I wanted to provide some balance because it wasn't all easy. And so I want her to know that it it was hard, but you can do hard things and great things can come of it. I love that. I love that's one of my favorite Glennon Doyle quotes is like, you can do, we can all do hard things. And I think the, the message that she will always be left with is the, you know, the perseverance that you worked through at that time. I think it's a, it's such a case where um, I heard when I was deciding to write a book, it was Lisa Nichols that I, I listened to actually got to see her live speak. And she talked about how, if you're trying to share a difficult story, you always want to finish your story, leaving everyone in integrity. And I was like, okay, that makes sense. Now that started to make mm-hmm. sense. How can I do this? And because that was always my intention is I wanted to leave everyone in integrity, but I felt almost this pull that I, I can't keep this to myself now. There's something here, but every question that you mentioned, I'm going to have to pull that clip when it comes time for the podcast to go <laughs> seriously, because everything that you mentioned there is exactly what we go through as humans. When it comes to, I want to share my story. I want to write a book. Who's going to listen? Who do I think I am? Am I that conceited? Like it, all of the doubt, what are they going to think? What is this going to, like, how is that going to fall out? How do I share the story? What, what's it going to look like? Those are all the doubts that come to the surface. So as they mm-hmm. all started to come to the surface, were you able to work through those fairly straightforward because you knew your bigger reason why, or were you ever derailed in the writing process? I was derailed quite often. I, I <laughs> Luckily, love the I, had, I love it. <laughs> I luckily I had a writing coach. I'll tell you, there was a reason why it took me four or five years to write the book. 
<laughs> because it was very intense and emotional for me. And luckily, I had a writing coach who was there to encourage me on. But when I was writing the book, I would actually sit down and pretend that it was actually happening in the moment, not that it had happened five years ago or six years ago. And I'd pretend that this was happening today. And I'd write everything in the present tense and just let all of the emotions flood out. And my first draft, I was never concerned. I, I never, I told myself not to be concerned about what I'm putting down or what other people are going to think. I just have to get all of the information down on the page. And then after that, I would go back and organize it in a way that people would understand and elaborate on areas that needed to be elaborated on. And that, and it wasn't until the very end in the final editing stages, like five years later that I looked at certain pieces that I thought were sensitive that people might be offended by and just tweaked those a little bit, but I didn't tweak it at the beginning stages because then I would have been filtering myself and it wouldn't have been the same story. And I really wanted it to be very raw and honest. And I didn't want it to be one of those books where you're writing with hindsight, where you know everything and you have all of the answers. I wanted people to see me stumbling through it because that was the truth of it to me. And how can you write a book about going through this without showing the whole truth of it? I love every single thing that you've said. I'm sorry if there's any noise, my dog just went crazy. Um, I love every single thing that you said there. And I think there's so much beauty in not, not standing at the end of the story and sharing it from this, like, it's all perfect. I've got to figure it out. Everything is done because that's not relatable. So when you've got a person who's trying to read your story and they're trying, they relate to you, but you come across that it's like, I've got it all figured out. It's easy. Like that's not relatable. That's not going to support somebody. So I do think that there's so much value in that. And as you're sharing that story, you're taking someone on that journey with you. So I commend you in allowing yourself to do that because that allows them to see themselves in that journey. And and there are some chapters, there's two chapters back to back that are probably kind of hard to read because I was in that big of a depression and it was really hard to pull myself out of it. But I wanted people to see all of that, especially so that they know if that's what they're going through, they know that they're not alone in going through that, that it is that hard for them for sure. Yeah. I think we have to normalize some of the hard, the hard times. I, I not glorify, normalize, like normalize those hard times, because I think that that is not that is not shared enough. That is not talked off, talked about enough. And, mm-hmm. um, I just honestly, I'm, I will definitely read your book because I, I, I'm so, I love seeing people step into the space of sharing a story. I really, really do. And when you're in those difficult stages and you're scouring in your reader and you're scouring, looking for a book to read, and there's nothing available, it's like, I remember saying to a mentor, I don't understand because I feel like there's just no support out there at all. And Mm -hmm. she said, maybe that's because you're supposed to write it. And I was like, right. No, no, that's not. (laughs) As you went through that. And I mean, I think that no matter how long it takes, it's, it's the, it's the time period that it takes because you're sharing and you're going through and you're healing and all those things you spoke before we started to record about the vulnerability hangover. And I would love for you to share your perception of what that is. 
<laughs> it's exhausting. I like I'm so thankful that I listened to that episode of your podcast where you use the words vulnerability hangover because my book just came out about two and a half months ago and I've been receiving a lot of positive feedback and that's all of the, that I have ever hoped for. Obviously, is for people to like the book. Um, and I've been doing a lot of podcasts and I've been doing a lot of guest blog posts and sharing excerpts of the book and just really putting myself out there and trying to let as many people know about the book because I know it'll help so many people, the more people that find out about it. And I am just so tired all of the time. <laughs> Usually after I do a podcast, I go have a nap. <laughs> because I'm just exhausted. And my husband the other day was like, why are you so tired all the time? And I said, I don't know. It's just doing all of this stuff is just exhausting to me. And you finally use the word vulnerability hangover. So I'm definitely going to share that with him tonight. Um, and I, I heard a similar thing about uh, people saying being an advocate on social media is exhausting and you have to take care of your, your self-care as well. Just being an advocate on social media, you know, even if you're not publicly speaking to people and you're just writing posts and things that can be exhausting as well. Oh, it, it 100% can. And we don't talk enough about that. We absolutely don't, but it can be when you're an advocate and you're speaking about very, you know, challenging topics and emotionally challenging topics. Not everyone's going to agree with you. Everyone's going to have different opinions and even if they don't, you're also going to get the people like I get some heartfelt, really deep messages from people. They're beautiful, but even yes. that takes some energy. And sometimes I can't respond to them all at the time. And it's yes. just, you know, thank you for, thank you for that. So it is a growing, um, and not to say growing pain, but it is a process to grow through. And I learned, um, especially when we were doing a lot of live events, I did a number of different speaking engagements in 2018 and 2019. And I learned very quickly that when I had one on a Saturday, I did not work on Monday. Like I, I actually was like, I just, I, even though if I loved the experience, you love being on the podcast, you love doing the things, but as you share from that vulnerable place, you have to allow yourself time to recover and recharge. And is there anything that one can do besides just giving it time? Are there any other techniques? It, I, I tried I, meditating today to see if that would help. <laughs> it, it helps somewhat. It helps somewhat. I think that I go internal and listen to what do I need every day? Because that changes every day. I talk about mm -hmm. the toolbox that we carry and it's full of different tools. And some days I need different tools. Some days I, need, and sometimes it's more than a day. Sometimes I feel great right away. And sometimes it's like, no, I need more time. And as I need more time, that's okay. Not to judge myself, mm -hmm. right? Not to judge myself because, and you're also like, when you're in a space, when you start to share vulnerable stories, you are going back into a painful time. It's yes. a painful time. And so it kind of stirs up. We've got our wounds and our scars. And as you are diving into and sharing from that space, it might be a, a scar that is healed. But when you talk about it, it kind of stirs up the feelings of the wound. And we remember those emotions. I think that we are tied to each other by our experiences, our emotions, our pain. And when we start to dive into those experiences, we immediately transport back to, oh my God, I remember that feeling. I remember mm -hmm. that experience and it just stirs it up. And that's, that's emotionally charged time and energy. So it depends. I also think that, um, the self-care that we need changes every day. 
And I think that we have to tap into that. I say that when our stress and our um, anxiety or our demands go up, then our self-care has to go in the exact same trajectory. And some people say, but I don't have hours a day. And I'm like, well, it's got to be relative. So if you're really doing a lot of vulnerable work, like you are, you're doing an incredible job of sharing a message, then where can you give back to yourself on a more regular basis so that we prevent the drop in burnout? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cause point. I, yeah, I have to believe like health, like how do you, what do you do for self-care now? And how do you catch the signs when it's like, oh, this is not the right direction and I've got to slow down. How do you do that? For self-care for me, I find doing things that allow me to live in the moment. Um, Playing sports has always been huge for us. Um, So right now I play volleyball on Wednesday nights with my husband and I go rock climbing with my daughter and every Tuesday. And then we go as a family on the weekend. Um, so that's very helpful. Reading is a huge one for sure. Cause you could totally zone out when you're reading. Um, I don't really watch Netflix much or anything like that. And I have been going for a lot of walks. I've discovered a local park that has a beautiful forested loop. So I go over there two or three times a week and it might just be a 20 minute walk, but just being in the trees and in nature really feels healing for me. Um, So those are the things I'm doing at the moment. Um, I also drink a lot of coffee (laughs) because, and it's not, it's not the drinking of the coffee. It's the taking a walk, the 10 minutes to the coffee shop and the process of going in and buying a coffee and coming out and walking back and just treating myself to something for sure. Coffee has always been a big one for me. That's beautiful. Those are all things that bring you back in the present moment, right? They bring Mm -hmm. you back to the present moment because that's a very conscious decision to bring yourself back to the present. And that Mm -hmm. takes time. That takes time and practice. And I think, I don't remember the quote, but it's like, when you're feeling anxiety, you're living in the future. And when you're feeling, I think it's depression, you're living in the past. I think that's a mm-hmm. little bit of a um, big blanket statement. Cause I don't think that that's <laughs> personally, I don't, but I, I know the anxiety when I'm feeling some anxiety pop up, it is almost always about something in the future. Almost always. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'll have to pay more attention to that. But also when I go on those walks, I don't listen to any music or any podcasts or anything. I just prefer to have complete silence. And I try not to think about promoting my book or work or family. I try to empty my mind on those walks and just um, pay attention to the birds and the squirrels or the snow on the trees, that kind of thing. I'm really intentional about that. That's beautiful. I love that because I think that that's the whole, that's present, right? That brings you, I listen to podcasts and audiobooks all the time, but then there'll be some days I'll get ready to start. I have a dog. We walk like five, six K a day, but I do love the nature walks. The more, when you're talking about that, like they're, they fill me even differently when I go out to the woods and it's like, it's just so different than walking on a sidewalk, but mm-hmm. I listen to podcasts and audiobooks, and all of a sudden I have a day and I'm like, no, don't feel like it today. I just need to like, what do I need today? It's like becoming this space of asking yourself and giving yourself permission to give you what you need today. Right. Mm-hmm. And that yeah, changes and not, every day, every day, not having ske- self-care all scheduled in. <laughs> oh, I actually think that's missing the whole point. Personally. I do. Yeah. I really do <laughs> because 
I think as humans, we can do even like healthy, no issues. We can, we can do the exact same thing every day. We can eat the same. We can sleep the same. Some days I wake up and I can take on the world. And some days I wake up and I think, God, I hope I can get through today. Like, I don't know Mm -hmm. what I did differently, but that's the whole thing is, is that we are different creatures every single day. So we have to Mm -hmm. meet ourselves where we're at, as opposed to saying, this is my self-care in order. So you are now in the process. Your book has only been out for two and a half months. Is that That's you right. Yeah. Yes. And you're in the process of podcasting and being on, on um, podcasts and being interviewed. And so I have a feeling these last two and a half months, you've gone pretty busy. Like it's been pretty busy. I think I've taped 10 podcasts in the last wow. two months. Wow. And I have never taped a podcast before that. So just the vulnerability of speaking and putting myself out there in the form of a podcast has been something because I'm used to just writing it down and sharing stories online, which is a totally different experience than actually speaking about it. Um, So I've been doing that, which has been a lot. And I've been also reaching out to tons of different organizations all over the world uh, about my book and about my story and just asking for their help. And saying, can you share this with your community? I know it would be a really valuable resource for your community. And even the process of doing that is very vulnerable, asking for people's help. And, you know, there there could be rejection. And the way I look at it is the same way as when I was trying to get a publisher for my book, every publisher who said no was just one more step towards the publisher who would say yes. So that's the same. I ended up self-publishing my book in the end, but um, it's the same way as when I'm trying to promote my book. There might be a whole bunch of people who say no, but then the sixth person could be the one who says yes, or the 10th person could be the one who says yes. So it's just for me steps towards getting to where I want to go. No, thank you so much for sharing that. Because again, we're not back to, we're back to, it's not a straight line. It's Mm -hmm. not a straight line. Sometimes we have to go like up and down and share. How has been the, how have your messages been received? Have you had, because like I reached out to you, we'd never had a conversation and sometimes a person or their story will cross my desk and I'm like, oh, I need to talk to that person. Like it's an immediate, yeah, I definitely want to talk to that person. And it's not necessarily because of um, what you were going through, but how you're doing it and how you're sharing that story and how you're being vulnerable. And I think when you, by having people on this show or helping you to share that story who are navigating it as best as they can and doing that, I just think you are giving so many other people permission to continue to find their way, like to find Mm -hmm. their way. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. How has the, have you, you've received a lot of support to share your story? You said you've been um, to a lot of people and done a lot of things. Yeah. Yeah. So I've been reaching out to a lot of Huntington's disease organizations in Australia, the UK, Africa, Canada, United States. So um, they're doing things like putting up a post about me on social media or putting me in their newsletter or putting me on their blog or, you know, sharing the news of my book or um, uh, same with being in the podcasts, right? And then just one thing always leads to another. I, I might meet this one person and then I'll look at their profile. I was looking at them because they work for a certain organization, but then they have on their profile a whole bunch of other organizations that I could reach out to. So the possibilities really are endless and it's just about talking to more people and reaching more people and just sharing the message of my book because I know that the the story will help help people. So. That's why I feel so 
gung-ho about doing all of this because I felt very isolated when I received my diagnosis. I was new to the Huntington's disease community. I didn't have anybody to reach out to. The only person who I knew who even knew about Huntington's disease besides my family was the genetic counselor who gave me my test results. So I would, you know, call her every once in a while, but it wasn't like I was going in for counseling every week. So there, me and my husband were trying to make this big decision about whether it was even morally correct to have children when there was a risk of passing on this disease and we had nobody to talk to about it. And then it was the same when we were going through infertility, you know, there's, we didn't know a lot of people going through infertility at the time because that's also something that people keep a secret. They don't want other people to know. They feel embarrassed. They feel defective. They feel like there's something wrong with them. They are fearing other people's judgment, right? Like I feared my mother-in-law would think that my husband should divorce me because I wasn't able to provide her with a grandchild. So I didn't want to tell her that I was infertile, right? Mm -hmm. So that's why I think it's so important to share these things uh, because there are so many people that are just living that experience on their own who don't have the support that they need. Thank you for sharing that because I I think the level of isolation that you're talking about, again, that needs a voice. It needs a voice so people can hear how that impacts us. And you've, you've created change with that just by talking and letting Mm -hmm. people know that it's, you've, you almost had two, you had two battles there between the Huntington's and the infertility. And Yeah. yeah, that's, those are two big battles that you had to go through right back to back, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, within a year of each other. That's, so. that's a lot. That is an absolutely mm-hmm. a lot. So as you do that, I mean, of course, they're both things that no one's talking about with infertility. I, I actually just came across a story the other day and it is somebody who I know who just lost a baby at 20 weeks. And then her two-year-old is in the hospital right now with a very serious um, health issue. And, you know, I sent her a message. I know her, but I like not super well, but I do know her. And I just sent a message and she said the pouring out of support has been so unbelievable. And I'm like, that is so Mm -hmm. great to hear. That is so great to hear because you never know, right? There's no right or wrong way. Like some people do share vulnerably in social media and some do not. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. That's okay. But as she did this, she goes, no, I've actually, this has helped me because now I am receiving so much support. And now people are talking about, you know, um, pregnancy loss and miscarriages and what this looks like. And um, mm-hmm. we just need more and more voices talking about these difficult things. For sure. hundred mm-hmm. percent. Mm-hmm. Um, what's coming next for you? Uh, <laughs> I've started my own company. Um, I'm going to be, uh, I've started my own company called Lemonade Press. And the idea behind the company is I'm going to be publishing medical anthologies that empower different medical communities. So next year, I will be producing a book about different Huntington's disease stories. I'm also going to do one about um, different rare disease conditions. And um, the final one for next year will be about paths to parenthood. So they're all um, things that are close to my heart. And there will be 15 to 20 different authors in each of the books sharing their stories. And Um, I did that because I I felt the power of not only writing my story, because that was one part of the journey. Writing my story was very cathartic and healing for me, and it allowed me to understand what I had gone through. There were some chapters that I wrote out 30 times 
until I could figure out, oh, that's why I made that decision. Like when I first wrote it out, I couldn't understand the reasoning behind it. And it took me a long time to understand the reasoning behind it. So I felt the catharsis of writing the story. And then releasing my book was a whole other thing that I wasn't expecting. And it's almost like I've taken all of the pain and all of the emotions that I went through and I put them into this book. And it's like, it sounds a little crazy to me to say it this way, but it feels like that book is a container for those experiences and I don't have to hold on to them and I don't have to carry them quite so much anymore. It's like they're there and I don't have to bear that burden as much as I was up until that, up until the day my book got released. So I want other people to be able to experience those things, to be able to come out from the secrecy of hiding in fear, because all of the things that I thought would happen when I started sharing my story didn't happen. Not a single one of them happened. And there have only been good things that have come from this experience. Oh, I love everything that you just shared. God, that was powerful. So, so good. Seriously, because there's so much freedom that can come from sharing a story. But what you said really made me think in a sense that like that book then becomes the container to hold the stories that you don't actually have to carry that yourself anymore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make it less real. It doesn't, it just means that it's, if you're not carrying it, that is saving you energy from carrying it, but which is also allowing you to heal that part of your story. Yeah. Yeah. I, I yes. love that you are helping to publish stories especially these kinds of stories, because I think that this is, again, you're diving into stuff that's is personal to you, but also is not being talked about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and then after I do those three books, then I'll move on to other subjects, right? There could, there, maybe there will be a cancer book. Maybe there will be a Parkinson's book. It's just, we'll go with the flow and see what comes up. Yeah. You know, what'll happen um, because we're in the process of we're releasing our first book from everybody holds a story and it's Mm -hmm. talking about the trauma that our bodies hold. And as we did that, we finished that we're getting ready to launch our second one. And all of a sudden, like a couple of very specific stories keep falling into our lap. And it's like, wait a minute, I think this is our next, like we're actually going to have a specific book on X or Y or Z or whatever that is, because it keeps showing up. There's going to be stories on this time alone in history, right? There will be time and stories on this time alone as we start to dive into how this time has impacted or affected, you know, us, Mm -hmm. our kids, et cetera. So there's, there's no shortage of stories. Yes. (laughs) Everybody has something they can share. They all do. They all do. And it's so funny because I can go back to all the things you said in the beginning. They're the same questions every single person has. Is there value in my story? Who actually wants to hear it? Who is this? What will they say? Like all the questions are exactly the same across the board. Everyone has them Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. until they can get into the purpose of their story and recognize the power of sharing that with someone else. Then all of a sudden it opens up all the possible opportunities of what can happen. Mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah. Wow. Um, are you at a point, can I ask you, are you at a point where you can see your diagnosis as a gift yet? Yes. I would, I would say that didn't happen until maybe the last two or three years for Mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. Um, because as I said before, it took me a good 10 years to come to a place of understanding and healing. And a lot of that was because I was still on the journey. Like it took us five and a half years to have our daughter. Um, so 
I couldn't, I, I, I was still going through everything for that long, long of a period of time. And then after we had her, there was still some healing to do and a lot of acceptance of my dad's condition and um, understanding my role as a caregiver. So it's only very recently, I guess I could fully say that I feel it's a gift yeah. and it's, it's a gift because it has given me a different perspective on life. I don't worry about the small things that I used to worry about all of the time. And I appreciate things that I have in my life more, especially my amazingly supportive husband who has been there th with me through all of this. We have an even stronger relationship now and it really has given my life a purpose. And a part of that purpose is raising my daughter and being the mom I had always dreamed of but also the purpose is sharing my story and again, helping other people by connecting with them and giving a voice to the experiences of going through genetic testing. And it's not just for Huntington's disease. There's a lot of genetic tests you could take and going through infertility and going through a grieving process. Those are all things that I, and mental health issues are all things that I give a voice to. Mm -hmm. I thank you so much for that because it's just, it's so needed. You can tell that it's healing for you, but it's <laughs> making such an impact on so many people. And again, I just think right now this is required. This is a required um, time right now for us to share who we are, what we're going through and experiences. It will connect and land with the right people. It will. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to ask, I know I'll have all of your information in the show notes, but where are the best places for people to connect and reach out with you? Um, so I have a website. It's at erinpatterson.com and my last name is spelled with one T. Um, and then for my publishing company, the website is lemonadecommunity.com. And currently my book, uh, which is called All Good Things, a memoir about genetic testing, infertility, and one woman's relentless search for happiness is available on Amazon. And I will be expanding the distribution into other channels in the new year. So it'll be available in more places. That's beautiful. We will make sure that it is all connected in the show notes. And thank you for that. The last question that I want to ask you is something that I like to ask. In on this show, we talk a lot about um, the importance of learning how to own your story and stand on your story and share your story and how it changes and can change your life by doing that. I see you as that person already. I see that I see you as that <laughs> person already. How has your life changed by being in that space of really like owning and sharing your story with others? Um, I live with less fear and anxiety for sure, because I was so worried about my secret coming out that I wasn't fully open with people in my life. You know, when I got a new job, there were certain things that I didn't want to talk about. My parents had separated and um, my dad was becoming symptomatic. And those were all parts of my life that I avoided talking about. So I felt like I wasn't really fully living or really fully being me. And I'm a very emotional and expressive person. So for me to have to hide and keep those things a secret was very difficult for me. It just didn't feel natural. And after being able to share my story online and having my book come out I just feel like this again it's just a release it's just there's not as much fear about, about those things I've I've put my story out there and I've shared every bit of my deepest darkest secrets 
and I've been the one to put them out there. Nobody's exposed them or found them out. So it just feels like such a pressure has been lifted off of my shoulders that I can really live and truly be the person that I'm meant to be, especially when it comes to being a parent to my daughter. She knows everything that's going on, of course, told in a child appropriate level. Mm -hmm. Um, But I didn't want to have to hide the fact that I'm going to get Huntington's disease from her either. Um, So it's, it's just been a really freeing experience. Beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that. The level of freedom that you're creating, combine that with the ripple effect and impacting others and helping others. It's a, it's it's hard to explain, isn't it? But it's a beautiful process of what you're doing. And I know, I have no doubt you're helping so many people in the process. So I thank you for what you're doing and giving this voice to really all of the experiences that you've come through in your life. Thank you. Yeah. And I just, I really wanted to be able to control my own narrative as well. Because after I was diagnosed, the message that you get from society is that you should feel sorry for yourself and that your life is ruined and that um, nothing is ever going to be the same and you should just live in this misery. That's kind of like what you get from media a lot of the time. So it, it took me a long time to say, no, I'm I'm not going to live like that. I'm going to look at this as a good thing. I'm going to embrace my disease. I'm not going to live for the next 15 or 20 years in fear of what is to come. I'm going to have a positive outlook on it and really share with my daughter that positive outlook as well, because I know that I'm teaching her now by my reactions on how to deal with her grandpa, how she's going to have to live with me one day, right? So if I'm coming home every time I visit grandpa and making a big deal about everything and how I can't handle it, then that's how she's going to feel when she's older as well. So I do tell her about the hard things, um, but then I balance it with these were the really hard things, but then these were the good things that had happened. So I'm trying to create a balanced view of our future together for her so that she'll have the tools in place to cope that I didn't have. Honestly, so incredibly powerful as I, I grew up in a generation where um, we just, we just didn't talk about anything. It was just mm-hmm. like, you sweep it, you move on, you suck it up. You don't cry. You keep going. And I know I pretty much have blown up that whole narrative because that's just not <laughs> how I live at all. And I know yeah. it disrupted a lot of things in my own personal family because of that. That's like, you just don't mm-hmm. do this. I'm like, well, this maybe not everyone else does, but I do. I feel like this is what I'm here to do. So I love how your words of controlling the narrative, like in the beginnings for so long, I stayed as a victim and the victim mentality is something we all go through. We all spend time there, but no, no change happens from there. Like no change Mm -hmm. can actually physically happen from there. But I think we have to work through that energy in order to move through, but controlling the narrative is like putting you in a space of like owning your own choices and taking responsibility for yourself and really dictating how you choose to show up in your life. Mm -hmm. And I think you are sending a message and a lesson to so many people. So I'm just so grateful for the work that you're doing. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. You're so welcome. Thank you for being here today. It was really fun talking to you. Thank you so much for having me on. My pleasure. 
Thank you so much for tuning in to the Own Your Choices, Own Your Life podcast. If you love this episode, please submit a rating and review on iTunes and please share it with someone you think could benefit from hearing this message or this podcast. I love connecting and meeting you. So please screenshot the episode and tag me on social media or Instagram stories at Marsha Van W. And until next time, remember when you own your choices, you truly own your life.